I, uh, we're traveling through this book of Jonah. And if I had one word for Jonah, I, when we were in maybe middle school, I remember the girls in my, it was especially a group of girls, not all of the girls, just one group. They developed this word for phrasing anything they didn't like that others of their compatriots, their peers in this middle school uh, class were doing. They would say, you were immature. Oh, that is so immature. And in seventh grade, when somebody calls you immature, oh, man, that is rough. You know what I'm saying? If I had a word for Jonah, when I'm watching the life of Jonah, I think Jonah pretty much, he reacts according to his, you know, whatever his gut says in the moment. And I think he's kind of immature. Do you get that feeling? Like he just kind of has this ability to throw a hissy fit. I love hissy fits. I want to throw them often. And I admit that deep within myself, I have an immaturity that I cover up with an exterior of professionality and this desire to look better than I am. But deep within me, when somebody does something wrong, I just want to go, ugh. And Jonah does too. And in that sense, he's like us, right? This last week of the Unexpected series, the Jonah series, is on the unexpected response. Greatest revival in the Old Testament happens in this strange place called Nineveh, not in Israel. People have prayed for revival over and over again for Israel, and they get their revival, but it's through strange means, and it doesn't look anything as positive as like what Jonah experiences in Nineveh. And yet, what Jonah responds, how Jonah responds is anything but positive. And we need to explore this week, Jonah chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, and I'm going to pray before we read it. But we're going to read right through Jonah chapter 4, and we're going to listen for his responses. We're going to listen for his emotions. We're going to listen for how he feels about how God feels. God acts according to God's feelings. And then Jonah, just like anybody else, when somebody acts in our lives, we get the chance to respond. And Jonah, he does. And my word for that, if I was a seventh grade, well, I won't say girl, but you know, those girls in my middle school class, I would have said, this guy is really, really immature. He just responds so normally, really. So watch as he does that, and before we do, let's pray. God, we just come before you, and we bless you in the name of Jesus, and we thank you for the fact that the word is absolutely alive. According to the book of Hebrews, it is sharp like a double-edged sword. It cuts between the pieces of our lives. It cuts between the parts of us that we think we know and the parts of us that you want us to know. It cuts between the things that we're trying to hide and the stuff that you're trying to cause us to confess. And God, deep within us, we have to confess that if we're honest, we probably don't all have the right emotional responses to what happens in our lives. We tend to get depressed. We tend to get broken. We tend to get angry. We tend to get irritated. We tend to get short. We tend to get kind of snippy. And yet, God, you call us to a greater reality, and we pray this morning that as we study your word that you would show us that reality and that you'd help us to see it for all it's worth. Jonah is all of us in some ways, and yet, in another way, he's called out in front of all of us to experience this whole Thing, this parable that he's living, a story that really happened, but is very much for us to understand and see ourselves in the light of it. So God, we pray that you bless us with that and bless us with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Jonah chapter 4 begins with these words, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. There's an emotional response, right? It displeased Jonah exceedingly. What displeased him? The fact that 120,000 people had turned around in the previous chapter. 120,000 people changed their life because he showed up and issued what was probably the worst uh, prophecy of the whole Old Testament. You know, all of these different prophets. There's 15 prophet books 
in the Old Testament, and maybe none of them are as weak as Jonah as far as prophecy. This sermon is the worst one, and yet everybody falls on their face, and they get before God, and they say, we have sinned, and we're sorry. So Jonah is displeased exceedingly by this, and not only that, but it goes on to say he was angry. Hmm. And he prayed to the Lord and said, and I love the fact that he's honest about this, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew that you were gracious. I knew that you were merciful. I knew that you were slow to anger. I knew that you were abounding in love, steadfast love. And those are all bad things, right? That's what Jonah says. All of these feelings God has for his people, they are bad things. You just got to kind of keep your mind on the fact that this is ironic. It's twisting us, right? It's helping us to see how funny Jonah is, how much a child he is. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. This has pushed him to the brink of suicide. I'm not making light of suicide, but Jonah feels suicidal about this because these people have turned their lives towards God. That's a bad preacher, wouldn't you say? We just have to kind of laugh our way through this passage. And the Lord said, great question, do you do well to be angry? Listen for Jonah's response. He doesn't do anything at all. He walks off in a hush, in a, in a huff. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city with no response to God. And he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad. Here's another emotion. So he's been displeased exceedingly. He's been angry. He's been suicidal. And now he, if you're counting, is exceedingly happy. What made him happy? A what? Shade. A plant. One plant grows in the middle of Northern Iraq, and this man is happy. 120,000 people turn their lives around in northern Iraq, and he's displeased, exceedingly angry, and all but suicidal. We just kind of have to wonder. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live, suicidal again. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? This time Jonah answers, and he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. In the Old Testament, not knowing right hand from left is kind of a way of saying you're a child. That's what it actually means. And what God is saying in this passage is that Jonah might be hateful towards Nineveh. And there's A semi-good reason for that, or at least a reasonable reason, a logical reason, because these people were terrors. They were killers. The king had a great army, and he would go marauding, and he would do all sorts of things. Fifty years from this passage, he's going to destroy Jonah's homeland. Very interesting, right? 
So there is a lot to be afraid of. And yet what God says about this 120,000 person city is not everybody is a king and not everybody is a soldier. Some of them are more like children. They don't know their left hand from their right hand. They get up in the morning and they bake bread and they go off to work and then they get done working and they go home and they raise kids and they're just trying to make ends meet like so many other people in this world. And he says they're just innocent people. Why would you care more for a plant, Jonah, than I should care for those innocent people who don't know that their king's committing all these atrocities and don't understand all of the evil in the world and are not necessarily held accountable for everything that's going wrong all the way around them? Why would I not care for them? And when their hearts change, why would I not relent from doing evil against them? Why would I not? Why would I, why would I judge them, Jonah? Is a plant really more important than all these people? That's the way the story goes, and that's how it ends. And one's tempted to think of all of those stories that Jesus is going to tell. This is a true parable. It's one that actually happened. But in the New Testament, Jesus is going to tell a bunch of stories. And some of those stories are about things that never actually happened. They're just stories, right? But they're stories with a point. They're stories with a spiritual application. And one's tempted to think that that's exactly what this writer had in mind when he put this into a book form. There are 120,000 people, and Jonah cares more for the plant. And then the book ends. That's it. No more. I want it to go on. I want a sequel. You know what I'm saying? If George Lucas can put all these Star Wars movies together after when I was a kid, the first Star Wars movies came out when I was in my early childhood. And I remember my parents would never let me watch them. They were afraid of the force. And that's true. You can laugh at that if you want. But I was never allowed to watch them. And then I remember when the first prequel came out, I was living in Pennsylvania, and I got to be able to go to the Oaks Theater. A friend of mine got me tickets, and we waited in line that was easily 100 yards long to see the first of this movie. I want to see a prequel and a sequel to what happened in the life of Jonah because I wonder what developed him into the person he is in the story, and I wonder how he changed after this story, but we never know any of that. All we know is that we're looking at a human heart, and that human heart is just nasty, isn't it? And it's not nasty evil. He doesn't kill people. He doesn't commit the atrocities that so many people do in our day. No, all he is is somebody who's just so misaligned, so emotionally messed up that when good hits him, he thinks it's bad. You know, you and I are a little bit like this, if we want to be honest, right? Sometimes we don't respond emotionally the way God would call us to. Wouldn't you agree? And we struggle to to not be frustrated in moments when God would have us be gracious. And we struggle to not be irritated in moments when God would have us be patient. And we struggle to not be down and just depressed in ways that God's like, I want to bring joy to your life. All of the things that God brings, we have kind of another set of things that we kind of buy into. I suspect those come from kind of lies we believe. Well, Embedded within this story is a twist, and it's a twist you might not catch unless you've read a great deal of Old Testament. So let me clue you in. At the first part of this passage, there is there are these words, and Jonah brings them out. He says, I knew, Lord, that you were gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I knew it, and he accuses God of this. What he's really trying to say is, God, you let your emotions get in front of your head. You made a bad choice here. You should be destroying these Ninevites and instead you're saving them. How could you let the moment, the the emotions of the moment cloud what is the right choice of action? The right course of action is to kill the Ninevites, according to Jonah. And God said, and according to Jonah, God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And that's a bad thing. 
He's let his good emotions cloud him from the almighty job of being the judge of the universe, right? Isn't that kind of ironic, the whole twist? We have to think in our minds, maybe Jonah doesn't understand how he's standing there. I mean, this is a man who ran away from God and then had to sacrifice himself by throwing himself into the Mediterranean Sea. And God graciously saved him, right? With a fish. Who does that happen to? That does not happen in this world. A fish saved this man's life. And then he's in the fish and he starts crying out to God and says, God, if you're by any chance gracious, if you love me at all, if you care about me as your prophet, come save my life. And what does God do? He saves his life. Wouldn't it have been more efficient for God to find another prophet? I mean, honestly, if we had one of those experts in leadership come into this situation, don't you think that God probably is acting a little strangely Believing in Jonah this whole way through. It's as though God is fixing his trailer to Jonah's tractor saying, yes, you're going to go where you need to go and I'm going to help you get there. I'm going to walk with you through it. And no matter how many times you fail, it's going to ironically result in good. And people are going to be telling this story forever because if you would have just gone to Nineveh, Jonah and the Ninevites, that would have been the storyline instead of Jonah and the fish, right? Jonah and the whale. He would never have been in all these nurseries and houses for two-year-olds and down, right? He wouldn't have been on sheets and curtains and all of those different things that we use them for in our kind of art of our day. We have a picture of this in our house. Interesting. And God is accused of being gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And what Jonah's doing is quoting the most famous prophet in the Old Testament. There's this moment when Moses, who's the great prophet, and he comes to God and he says, okay, God, show me who you really are. And God says, you're going to die. I'm too great for you. You can't handle this. And Moses says, well, I would like to see something. And they go back and forth. And God says, I will put you in the cleft of a rock. And I will walk in front of you. And I will cause my glory to, to, to just kind of show just a little bit of myself to you. And it's as though he puts his hand up against Moses and he walks past him. But the noise that, jo- that Moses hears in this moment is the proclamation of God's character. It goes back to Exodus 33 and 34. And in that passage, it says, I am Yahweh. I am who I am. I am the Hayah. That's the word. And then it says, I am gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. All of the same words that Jonah is going to quote in this passage. And if you're keeping track, you will look across the Old Testament and you will see psalm after psalm after psalm after psalm will use these words, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Again and again, the people who write the poetry of the Old Testament will quote this line from Moses. And then prophets will pick it up later and they will grab a hold of it and they will, in the moments of great difficulty, they will trust in these words. God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Every time they're used in the Bible, hundreds of times, they're used positively until Jonah turns them into an indictment of God's character in this passage. Isn't that humorous? The Bible says this is who God is. He is so wonderful. He is gracious. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in love. And it repeats it over and over again like a creed or like a mantra so that we will never forget. It's like the 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 words of our day, the Pledge of Allegiance or something like that. Every Jew would have known this line. And Jonah says, I knew it. You are exactly who you said you were all those years, 700 years ago. You are those things. And that means that what I want to have happen will not happen because you are this thing that is so good and I don't like it. 
You ever throw a hissy fit? You ever just honestly, you just come home from work and you just have had it with whatever situation and you throw yourself on the couch and you talk to your spouse and you just let them, I can't believe that she blah, 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 blah. I can't believe that he would do da, 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 da. And we go on and on and on, right? You've been there, right? And do you ever look back a day later and say, well, I'm glad I got that off my chest, but it was really not productive use of my time. Rarely do we really need that space to vent. We kind of take it up whether we like it or not or whether we think it's productive or not, but that's not really the best. Well, Jonah has nobody to vent to but God. And let me tell you that God is capable of handling Jonah's venting, right? He is more than worthy, more than capable of handling all of what Jonah brings at him. I want to just for a moment explore God's character through these words because they're so commonly referred to and they are ironically placed in the middle of this story for us to understand who our God is. Let me take them apart for you. Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. This is who God is. This is his character. And it is the baseline of how the Bible describes our God. If you've never run across these words, you're missing out because they're the most commonly referred to words in all of the Old Testament. Isn't that a thought? This is what every writer, and there's 39 books in the, in the scripture before Matthew, and then the New Testament will use these words all over again in different ways. They will use these words about Jesus because they are the words that describe, according to Moses, they describe God's character the best. So let's start with gracious. What does it mean to be gracious? You might have all sorts of words. What do, you, what do you think it means to be gracious? Kind? Okay. Thoughtful? Let me give you what it actually means in both the ancient languages that the Bible's written in. It just means God likes us. That's all it means. You know, if somebody could have convinced, if I could go back to that seventh grade Josh, you know, I, I'm trying to think how many years ago that was. I think that's 25 years. 25, if we could go back to that seventh grader who was being called immature by all of those much more mature young ladies than myself in my class, what we would realize is that one of the things I never believed about myself is that God liked me. In fact, if there's a word that's hard for me to believe, it is this word. And when I'm doing counseling and experiencing life with the people of Parker Ford Church or Pottstown or anywhere at all, one of the things I find that most lies that the enemy will pour into our life go back to they always go back to does god like us does he actually care albert einstein once asked what is kind of a formative question is the universe a friendly place he just asked it like that at the heart of what this universe is about does it like that we're here there was this movie called the matrix that came out years and years ago and one of the things that happened in it where there were these robots that took over mankind and one of the robots says i have discovered that the human race is actually a virus a virus you guys are the worst thing that ever happened to this planet and sometimes when you read the news i read the green part of the BBC where it's all about the environment, what it makes me think is I'm the worst thing to ever happen to this planet. That's completely wrong. Do you know that human beings were the best thing that ever happened to planet Earth? That God loved us, that he likes us still, that he cares for us, and that he likes us, that he, that he has a, a particular view of each one of us. That means that he not only likes us, he doesn't just like us as a group of people. Yes, I like that type of people, that human race. No, he likes us individually. He knows our social security numbers. He knows how many hairs are on our heads or how many there are not on our heads. God likes us. 
One of the things that religion poured into my life for so many years is that I was, and I think it probably poured this into Jonah's life as well, is that I wasn't quite sure whether the God of the universe actually cared, whether he actually wanted me to do well or whether he was waiting around the corner to smash me like a bug when I messed up for the very first time. You know, God just really has a baseline of looking at each of the people he creates and says, I really like that one. Isn't that amazing? Now, the the challenge is it's also true of the people you don't like. It's not just you that he likes. He likes you for who you are. He likes you because he created you uniquely. He likes you because you're a specific person that is a, that is a, you're created in his image and you are created in this design that he envisioned. He had a plan for your life and it's a beautiful plan and most of us are broken that plan massively and yet he continues to like us through all of it. I wish I could have been convinced of that much earlier in life and I wish I could remain convinced of it daily throughout my life because it's not just a theological concept. It's a personal relationship. It's a personal liking. God graciously likes us. Paul writes 13 books in the New Testament. He writes more books than anybody else, right? Starts with Romans, ends with Philemon. All of these books in between are written by Paul. Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Go down the list. And you know what he likes to talk about? A simple word called grace. When he's looking around in the early church era for, for a word that makes sense out of all that Jesus accomplishes, Jesus who died for our sins, Jesus who offered his life for ours, when he was looking around for what word makes sense to describe the massive love and care of God for the human race and why he would give his only son in this tragic way, he rests upon what God tells Moses in Exodus 34. And what Jonah ironically indicts God of in Jonah chapter 4 and everything in between that seems to quote this passage again and again. And he says in Ephesians, it is by grace you have been saved. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest any person should boast. You might not know it, but every time Paul uses the word grace, he's quoting. And he's quoting all of these passages in the Old Testament. And he's saying that the new covenant, the new blessing that we can see in Jesus is tied all the way back to a very old God who's been timelessly living out the same gracious existence for all of history. You know, one of the things this tells us about God is that he is personally invested in your life and in mine. Isn't that amazing? The fact that he has 7 billion people on this planet and he is graciously looking at you and at me and he never forgets and he never stops actioning this plan because he likes us. There's a lot that we could talk about in that regard, but know that all of what happens in the New Testament in the the way of salvation, all of what God is doing in the way of communicating with human beings is resting on this little word, this character trait of his. God is gracious. He likes us. It goes on from there. God is merciful. That word is far, far insufficient for the word in Hebrew that's underneath it. I'm going to teach you this word. Can you learn a little Hebrew this morning? You can say it with me, ruhama. Now, if the person in front of you isn't getting a little wet, you haven't said the word correctly, okay? Ruhama. You did better the first time. Let's try one more time. Ruhama. Ruhama. And what it has to do with is a woman's womb. You know, there is this love that mothers feel for their children, right? Every hardened criminal who's incarcerated, when asked, who do we want to write, who do we want to talk to, who do we want to connect with, they always start with their mothers, not their dads. 
Dads get a bad rap. Maybe that's why Father's Day is kind of a lesser holiday than Mother's Day. It's true. We're slighted, men. That's how it is. We should laugh about that. Father, we should make Father's Day a big deal around here. But, you know, mothers have an attachment that's different. And children have this kind of understanding. One day a week I stay home with my kids and they, they, uh, I, I stay home and get them to the bus. Shelby gets them to the bus every other day. But one day a week I get them on the bus and, every week, and Shelby goes into work on the day. And every week when Noah gets up on that day, he says, where's mom? Every time. And I've asked Shelby when... He gets up and I'm not there. Does he ask, where's dad? And he doesn't ask, where's dad? <laughs> Why is that? He has a special place in his life and his imagination for his mom. He cares for her in a way that's different. And he feels cared for by her in a way that's different, right? This word means exactly that. It means God is attached to us the way a mother is attached to her children. It's a feminine word. It's a word that talks about the fact that God feels about human beings the way a mother feels for their children. Isn't that interesting? God feels this compassionate attachment to who you and I are. He feels merciful, compassion, whatever you want to say. The way you feel when you hold a little baby in your arms and you think, I could never, ever do anything to hurt this one. That is how God looks at the human race. And he attaches himself to us and he watches us. Even as we tragically go the wrong ways in our life, even as we do this, that, or the other thing that breaks his heart, he never gets unattached. He never somehow kind of disassociates himself from people because they're so messed up. He says, this is my child. And if they do drugs, they're still my child. And if they go off to jail, they're still my child. If they do all these things, they may not be a child who recognizes me. They may not be a child who's deciding to be my child. And yet I feel compassionate towards them. And 120,000 people in Nineveh who didn't know God at all received this compassion. I love what God does through moms. There's just nothing else like it. The way he pours his character into women is different than the way he pours it into men, and it is unique and special. And God has an understanding of how to use genders in ways that bless humanity and bless the world around us. And when he decides to describe his own character, one of the foremost words that he uses about his own love for us is that he is gracious, and now he's merciful or compassionate. He's ruhama. He feels attached. I don't know if you've ever been there when a woman says goodbye to a child. I had a young man I went to high school with. We played basketball together, and he developed brain cancer. And for three years, he fought that brain cancer. And at 22 years of age, he passed away. And I watched his mom, and it's though she just kind of shriveled up. She just hurt in her heart to this place. She was so attached. She had three kids, but she was so attached to that one. She was attached to all three of them. I don't know that he was her favorite, but she had this deep sense that she had lost something that was irreplaceable. Some of you may have lost a child, and you felt that way. It hurts. The saddest funerals I ever attend are when a mother says goodbye to a child. It's not the way it's supposed to work. It's not the way it's supposed to be. If you don't understand this about God, please understand that what happens when people walk away from him is that he feels like his children are slowly killing themselves. And he's looking at us going, why are you doing this? You're destroying your life, and I love you. And it's as though he attends funeral after funeral after funeral for children who have decided not to follow him. Isn't that an incredibly sad thought? 
This is how God describes his own heart, his response to us. His emotions are that he is gracious, he is merciful, he is compassionate. But he's another thing, and I really like this word. He is slow to anger. Are you slow to anger? I'm not easily slow to anger. I have to work on this one. It literally means God is patient with us. But let me tell you about the Hebrew behind this one, because what goes on to this, I grew up in a, in a, town that had a 25 to 1, I actually figured out the math, cow to person ratio, okay? You're figuring that out? For every person, there were 25 cattle in our community. There were 1,300 people in our community. The farm I worked for alone had 2,000 head of cattle, just one farm. My neighbors growing up had a bull. And we weren't allowed to get too close to that bull. But every now and then we'd sneak into the barn and they had these gigantic bars. And that bull would just go crazy if somebody walked into the barn. He was so territorial. I don't know if you know this about male cows, but they are really scary animals. And this was a gigantic animal. I was small. Maybe maybe it wasn't as big as I think, but it looked massive. And I remember the farmer saying, stay away from them. Don't put your fingers. They had, they had these bars that were like two inches thick. And don't put your fingers on the other side of those bars. He might smash his head up against the against the side of that fence and you'll get hurt. Every time I walked into that barn, something happened that you'd see the bull in his eyes would see you. And his eyes got big and something else got large. His nostrils, they grew inflamed like this just instantly. And he blew this air out and snot and all sorts of nastiness. Just out he would go and he'd look at you just like the one on the, 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 uh, what were those, what were those, uh, Sunday morning or Saturday morning cartoons? There was that bull, right? That just used the El Toro, you know, it's not, he would do that. He would look at us and he would have these gigantic nostrils. And I'm, I'm like seven years old in this, in this barn. And this bull looked at me like I, I probably weighed 40 pounds and he weighed 2000, you know, and he's looking at me and he's like, Ugh. the literal Hebrew behind slow to anger is literally this. God's nostrils don't get big quickly. That's literally how it could be translated. Isn't that funny? Because in this agricultural world in which Jonah lived, God chooses to speak everyday common language. And what he says about himself is, I am not looking for you to mess up. I'm looking for you to do well. I'm not waiting around the corner and going to be this reactionary father like you have, like my kids have. Sometimes when my kids mess up, I just find it so hard not to get my guts churning and go, why would you do that? Why would you leave those clothes in the middle of the floor? Why would you do this or that? Why would you leave the gate open and let the dog out? Why would the list is long? And what this says is God is not impatient with us. He's actually continuously actioning his patience. And he's not somebody who easily writes us off, gives up on us. He loves us. He's gracious and he's compassionate. He's merciful. And now he's slow to anger. One more word. And it might be even the best one. Grace is the one that's most commonly used. But loving is one that's used in the Old Testament quite a bit as well. And this one means he loves us no matter what. The word there is a different word than many of the common words for love. What it means is that when God says he's going to love something, he stays attached no matter what happens in the world's history. 
And the story of the Bible, whether you know it or not, is a love story. It's the story of a God who loves people, and those people just keep going the wrong direction, and he keeps trying to bring them back up and going in the right direction. And he chases them down, and he says, I want to love you. And they say, we don't want to be loved by you. We want to be autonomous. We want to be our own individuals. We want to go our own way. And God says, I can take you back. I can bless you. And it goes up and down and up and down. And every book in the Old Testament and every book in the New Testament, to some degree, is about that. If you read the Bible, you will see these passages. Don't turn away. Hebrews chapter 10 says, we're not among those who shrink back. Why? Because most of us, when we see God, we do shrink back. That's why we have to work hard at not shrinking back from what God has called us to do. And yet he loves us no matter what. He keeps loving us. There are consequences for sin, no doubt. But God keeps loving no matter what. And these are the baselines for his character. Notice that the word judgmental doesn't come in here. Notice the word angry does not come in here. It never says God is exceedingly mad. Those those words will come out about God all throughout the Old Testament. He will be angry because anybody who loves somebody who doesn't love them back is tempted to be angry. And maybe that's not a bad thing, right? If you love someone and that person decides not to love you, that hurts. And the God of the universe is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love. And yet what happens again and again is that people say, we would rather have smaller things that we would focus on than this God. We would rather go our own ways. We would rather do our own things. You are chasing us with this steadfast love, and we would rather it was less steadfast. We would rather it become something that kind of lets us go quicker. Well, Jonah uses all those words, and he throws them in the face of God. You know, our responses in life are based in interesting ways on what is deeply held within us. Our emotions come from our perspectives. And let me tell you that I believe God wants your emotions. What God wants out of Jonah is that he gets Jonah to a place where he and Jonah's heart are connected, that they actually parallel each other, that what Jonah feels is what God feels. And I think that's what God wants for each one of us. Quite frankly, what God wants for children who are mature is that they become people who, when they get hurt or affected or blessed, they respond with the heart of God. They respond with the emotional response that God would have for us. That is very difficult. Our emotions are based on our perspectives. Our perspectives are based on these things that are deeply held within us. They are beliefs and understandings that are down in the core of our being. We may never even have assessed these things. We grew up with them. Our parents taught them to us. Our culture taught them to us. If we were lucky, the scriptures taught them to us. But many of us don't know which what, what we're actioning when we have an emotional problem. And the reason why is because they're based originally on these paradigms. Well, God is trying to get Jonah's paradigms back, and he's trying to get your paradigm, to be shaped by his character. What we need is for ourselves to be shaped at the core of our being by who God is at the core of his being. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't it be amazing if we understood that our call to be gracious is not just something that God says, well, you should be gracious. It's that you're going to be transformed by the walk with Jesus. On the last night of Jesus' earthly life before he's crucified, he goes away with the disciples and he says these words. He says, you must abide in me. Abide in the vine. I am the vine. You are the branches. And you can bear much fruit if you stay attached. And when we stay attached, our paradigms are shifting. Those are the deeply held core beliefs of our lives. They get shaped and we start to realize that God is gracious and he is slow to anger and he is compassionate and he is abounding in love. He is these things and that changes our perspectives. When we get into a situation, what we think of as fair is different than what we originally thought. 
You know, the world changes very quickly around us, right? Right? Isn't that happening? Every day things are... I I read a few years ago that the amount of information you can remember, that you could know, all of the potential information is doubling every three months. That means we're discovering as a human race so much scientific and technological information, so many different things are compounding all the time that we could take all of this information that we know today and it'll be this much three months from now and it will be this much six months from now and it will keep going exponentially up. We don't have a way of keeping up. This is one of the reasons why our kids are stressed in school. There's just more to know. It takes more education than ever before to say I'm an educated person. You know, God needs people who are rested in his character in the middle of a world that is fast changing. The Bible offers us the hope that we can be people who are loving and joyful and filled with peace. We can be patient and kind, gentle, faithful, self-controlled. All of these words that the Spirit of God wants to birth in our life, they get birthed by paradigmatically attaching ourselves to the vine and walking daily. We've talked about these spiritual disciplines, right? Prayer and scripture reading and musical worship. Just remembering who God is. When we start to action those things, we are changed on levels that we can't even imagine. We don't obey. We actually are just altered in the middle of it all. And when that occurs, these paradigms shift, our perspectives shift, and we see things differently. When we're walking with God, our opinions are different. And then based on those opinions, what happens emotionally, uh, how we respond, is altogether different as well. You know, every other week on Thursday, the Parker Ford Church pays the pastoral staff. And the money drops right into our accounts. And I check it and make sure, yep, there it has appeared. If, if that didn't appear one day, I would have an emotional issue, Right? Why didn't we get paid? What happened? I would call our church treasurer. I would wonder about this. I would go, how on earth did I not somehow get paid? I would have an emotionally negative reaction because my perspective is that I always get paid every other Thursday. And then we go to the paradigms and we know this is kind of the experience that we're led to believe. Well, a few months ago, something happened on a Thursday, every other Thursday, and it was on the Thursday we were supposed to get paid. I did. I got paid. It was a blessing. I was like, oh, look, there it is again. And then I looked below it, and there it was again. I got paid twice. Our payroll company, not Pam's fault, our payroll company literally paid me twice. Shelby said, what a blessing. We got paid twice this week. Isn't that great? You know, my paradigms say I only get paid once a week because that's all of my experience, and that's what our church has agreed to. My perspective is that I just kind of check it out and make sure that that's okay. And then I emotionally respond, yes. More money. Of course, I had to call Pam and give it all back right that morning because it's illegal to steal money from a church. You agree, right? The emotional response that you have in life based on every situation is based on your perspective, and that is based on deeply held things, and God wants to change those things about you. And let me tell you what he wants most to change. You will know you've arrived. You know that we, when we have new members here, we always say, uh, knowing that Christians never fully arrive. That's how we start the whole service of beginning new membership connections. And I believe that. But you know you have arrived to a level of maturity when you get what you pray for. That's true. Most of us don't get what we pray for, right? Come on, be honest. You've prayed for things and they have not come true. 
follow with me for just a quick second, because Jonah doesn't get what he prays for. He actually agrees with God twice. He agrees with God about the fact that he's a sinner, and he throws himself into the Mediterranean, and God says, yep, you're a sinner, and the sea calms out, and the storm goes away. And then he agrees with God about God's character and how he feels about Jonah. He says, God, do you like me? Because I'm in a fish. And God says, yep, I do like you, and I'll save you. And the fish spits him up onto dry land. But now in this passage, he's not going to agree with God anymore, right? God also likes the Ninevites, and You know, to be a good prayer person, your emotions have to parallel God's. You have to feel what God feels to be somebody who can pray effectively. And when we feel all of these other things, there's a problem. So listen to this passage. This is from John chapter 16. It's from that same passage I quoted earlier about the abiding in the vine. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name, Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Asking in the name of Jesus means that we get so connected to Jesus that we feel what he feels. God is a God capable of grief because he's a God who loves and he's disappointed. God can be angry. God can be deeply loving and compassionate. Whatever God feels in the moment, when we start to walk with God, we start to feel what God feels because he changes how we are in our core being. And then he changes our opinions about things, and ultimately he changes our emotions. And when we pray from that emotional place, that is where God loves to work. Isn't that funny? Some of us have been taught all our lives we're not supposed to trust our emotions, right? We're supposed to live in our thoughts. And believe me, if you go to Walmart this afternoon and you start to viscerally be attracted to all sorts of clothing, don't go buy them. Emotions don't make good buying agents, right? But when you are transformed as a Christian... And your emotions are changed into what God's emotions would be like and how you are altered is to be like him. That whatever you ask in the name of Jesus, you receive. That's a huge, huge promise. I don't get everything I pray for. Every now and then I realize that I spend most of my time praying that I will get my heart aligned with God so I can pray a few prayers that are in keeping with what he's wanting me to pray. I listen to a worship song in my personal time sometimes that says, where you go, I'll go. Where you say, I'll say. What you want me to pray, I'll pray. And God wants you to be a person who gets what you ask for, but that means you're transformed first. And if you're like Jonah, you respond in all of these negative ways, untransformed, immature, and broken, and I'm in the same boat with you. And we come into this whole thing called a walk with God, and we don't know whether we're really actioning the heart of God or whether we're actioning ourselves. You find out whether you're somebody who's actioning the heart of God because you're more offended for him when you're sinned against than you are for yourself. You love your children more because God loves them and you realize that than you love them for who you, for how you feel. Most of us base our prayers on how we feel. And when a prayer is working correctly, it's based on how God feels. And Jonah at the end says, I can't do that. I can't get my heart to be like God's. I can't go in this direction. And God asks a fabulous question of him. Do you do well to be angry? And if Jonah was honest, he would have to say no. Most of our emotions aren't really things that we could feel good about, right? Most of our emotions are just there doing whatever. We we don't take control of them. We don't lead them. We don't expect much out of them. And yet when we are transformed, what God is saying is, I would love to take that part of you and turn it into a place that could change the world because you're so good at praying for other people and so good at praying for those you care for. You get transformed by the love of Jesus. And what will change is how you pray. 
And when that changes, your whole life will change. That usually takes a long time. I'm just warning you. One more passage from James chapter 4. This is a little nastier. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You, you desire and you do not have because you're going after things that you covet, that you want, that you're just going after your own selfish desires. And when you do finally ask anything of God, what you're looking for is him to supply your needs instead of looking at God and saying, let me be transformed according to your great plan for this earth. And let me join you in what you're doing around me. And let me be a part of what you're passionate about. What if our passions were like God's passions? Wouldn't that be something? The daily walk of becoming a Christian is somebody, and I understand you become a Christian all at once by converting to Christianity, believing these claims in the gospel, but in another sense, every day after that is supposed to be a day when we're growing to be more and more and more and more like Jesus. And as we're being altered into the character of Jesus, we gain his paradigms and we gain his thoughts and eventually we gain his responses. You heard about Corey Ten Boom, right? We had this Sunday extra on Corey Ten Boom. She lost her dad and she lost her sister at Ravensbrück, a horrible death camp that the Nazis had in Eastern Europe. And one of the things she, she did was years later she went back and this Gestapo guard walked up to her. And he said, I am so sorry for what I did to your family. And he apologized and he held out his hand. And Corey Ten Boom talks about the, the process of forgiveness and having the heart of Jesus. She said, I've gone so far to be connected to Jesus through all of this pain and all of this hurt. But to look and see my sister Betsy was killed sort of by this man, not, not directly, but the way he treated her resulted in her sister getting so sick that she eventually died in the middle of this death camp. And he held out his hand and she talked about her hand literally shaking as she tried to have the emotions of God and accept him as he had become a Christian and he, she was willing to forgive him. What a story, right? She just couldn't get her hand out there. It took minutes, she said. And eventually she grasped his hand and she said the freedom that came from that moment of forgiveness. Could you do it? After somebody killed your family member, could you love them that much? Could you share the heart of what God is all about? And Jonah is being asked that same question, and he responds negatively. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. God is asking us, will you ask according to my passions, or will you seek your own? Will you go after what you want, or will you go after what I want? Will you go after the emotional level that Jesus is already at, where he cares for every person on this planet, where he is gracious and slow to anger and compassionate and bound? and loving kindness and will you let your heart be changed by this God God's got a little bit of a goal list for us and let's just kind of check it off in closing the first is that we grow to share the heart of God the second is that we grow to share the perspectives of God and ultimately we're supposed to grow to the place where we can trust the knee-jerk reactions of our heart the emotions the place where God wants to action the prayer of our lives Prayer is a very difficult road, let me tell you. And Jonah found that out because he was a man of prayer. We might not know that, but that's what a prophet does. And Jonah was called to prayer. There's no question. Every prophet was. If we trace back the beginnings of what prophet means, he was called to prayer, and so are you, and so am I. And we're, we're called to pray 
in the name of Jesus. And we're called to pray according to the passions of Jesus so that the world can be transformed around us. And this will happen when the emotions of our hearts are in line with our God. Join me in prayer.